in the face of extreme civil and ecclesiastic tyranny, history gives us both a picture and a direction of how God's people dealt with the tyranny of men. This is the 56th sermon in the series, Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming today from the book of the Judges, Judges chapter 2, Judges chapter 2, beginning in verse 11 through verse 16. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods of the gods of the people that were round about them, and bowed themselves unto them, and provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he delivered them into the hands of spoilers that spoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies round about, so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. Whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn unto them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges, which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. Luke is writing in the Acts of the Apostles, in chapter 5, Acts in chapter 5, by the same spirit that moved the prophets of old and the judges of Israel, as well as the patriarchs. Luke is writing Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 26 through verse 32. Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them and set them before the council and the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower there fades away, but God's word stands forever and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now we left off last time with two questions concerning the Christian duty under a corrupt, tyrannical government. And we asked a series of questions. And one of those questions was, what does history itself afford us as far as examples of what a people are supposed to do in situations like oppression and tyranny. In other words, do we have any definitive historical models that we can follow? Are there any directions given to us in history that we can follow? Now to this, I must add to this first consideration as to why a people go into captivity under tyrannical government. So I think the first question is, why would a people go into captivity? What brings a people into captivity to tyrannical governments? And the answer comes quickly from Judges chapter 2, verse 11, where the people of God 
Those who called upon God as their Savior forsook the Lord God of their fathers, verse 12, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods of the gods of the people that were round about them and bowed themselves unto them. And that is what provoked the Lord to anger. So the people forsook God and the negative consequences of forsaking God was that Tyranny then resulted. The spoilers came and destroyed the people. And so whenever a people leave off serving the one true God, especially when it's God's people, tyranny and oppression results. And what is wonderfully hopeful, however, is that God often, in light of that, once the people get their fill of tyranny and oppression, What is wonderful about this is that God is merciful and he raises up a deliverer to bring the people out of bondage. And we see that in verse 16. The next question we sought to consider was, what are some of the challenges in deciding what to do in our modern era since no historical model can provide all of the answers, especially now we live in a technological age? an age of of nuclear weapons, an age of tanks and missiles and all kinds of things. So we can't really get all of the answers, but what kind of direction can we get? We have already seen how clear and precise the scriptures are as to the duty of Christians under a corrupt government. So the first question that we should ask is what can we glean, even though it may not provide all of the answers, but what can we glean from history apart from the history of biblical antiquity. What about history after the scriptures were completed? Now, not only does God's word offer commanded duties to resist in principle, as we see in the book of the Judges and in other places, but it gives us specific cases throughout biblical antiquity that confirm the biblical rule of resistance in the face of tyrants. One of the most quoted verses is from Acts chapter 5. We ought to obey God rather than man. So fundamentally, the way back, and that's really what the question is, how do we get back? How do we get out of the tyranny, out of the oppression? How do we not become a miserable people destroyed? How do we become a miserable people destroyed under tyranny? How do we get back? What is the way back from tyranny? Well, the way back first and foremost from tyranny is repentance and then obedience to the one true God. But until a deliverer is raised up to lead the people into that divine service, resistance to unjust laws and tyrannical government bodies is actually commanded. Remember, Peter, James, and John were stating that we must obey God rather than man in the face of the Roman Empire and the ecclesiastical tyranny of the Pharisees. So even though tyranny and tyrannical rule existed throughout history and was even practiced throughout the age of the early church and the medieval period, it was not until the European Reformation that a political theology concerning government law and justice as well as public policy was solidified. In fact, it was even codified among the reformers. But it wasn't until the Reformation. And that's why it's so important to recognize the impact of the European Reformation because it was at that time when a political theology was codified. What was needed, and they understood that importance of that need, was a theology of the state. In order to effectively combat abuses of power by wicked men who would be as God, they needed a theology of the state. As theologian Dr. R.J. Rushdini stated, quote, a Christian theology of the state must challenge the state's claim of sovereignty, 
Only Jesus Christ is Lord and sovereign. And the state makes a Moloch of itself. In other words, it makes a murderous idol of itself when it claims sovereignty. The church must be, notice, the church must be roused out of its polytheism and surrender. The crown rights of Christ the King must be proclaimed. End quote. That is the way back. Now this political theology was sometimes called political sociology because they understood that it affected all of society. But it wasn't until later on, during the days of Calvin and Beza and others, that it was called political science, which is used today, that term is called political science today, which was probably a term coined by Genevan law scholar Johannes Althusius. Now, one of the first things a tyrannical government does is pervert the law structure as it concerns justice. Justice is perverted. The first thing that is perverted is justice under a tyrannical governance. Where there is no justice, there is no safety. And where there is no safety, there can be no liberty. And whenever liberty is removed from society, it results in bondage. Now, the forerunner of much of the reformational teaching is St. Augustine, And he had this to say about a tyrannical perversion of justice. He said, justice being taken away then, what are kingdoms but a great den of thieves? And we are living in a time where we are in a great den of thieves. In a two-tier justice, one for the elites and one for everyone else, we are very much unsafe. The Reformation, in particular the Genevan Reformation, the European Reformation, codified the idea of justice within their political theology. Robert Thornburn, in his book, The Christian and Politics, you think you'd ever put those two terms together, the Christian and politics? Well, he explains what the Reformers understood. He said, quote, The state is to be a minister of justice, but what is justice? The state is to punish evildoers. How do we determine who is an evildoer? These questions are important because liberals love to talk about justice. Especially, they are fond of the term social justice. It has become one of their buzzwords. We must look to God's word to learn what justice is. Justice must be delineated in terms of the Bible. Otherwise, justice becomes nothing but humanism and the civil ruler becomes nothing more than an agent, an agent of humanism. Now, we have to ask another question. What set the men of the Reformation apart from their Greek, Roman, and medieval predecessors? Well, it was their deep conviction of the totality of God's sovereignty as judge, lawgiver, and king over men, over men's rules and their laws and nations. It was the totality of God's sovereignty, especially over law, because God is the lawgiver. The consequence of that conviction led them to believe that no laws were valid if they violated the law of God, because the law of God was given by a divine, perfect, righteous source And therefore, no law which contradicted that law was to be considered valid. They were also under the conviction, which proved to be correct, that whenever God's laws are obeyed, nations prospered. And when those laws are violated, on the other hand, nations then were destroyed. 
That was a historical truth. That was a biblical theology. Not a theory. It was a fact, a fact of history that could be traced back throughout the annals of time, providing full proof that God was in fact the universal judge, lawgiver and king over men and nations, and submission to him was to be unquestionable. They understood that that once a government mandated any law which violated the law of God, that proved that that government was corrupt, and no longer could that government claim legitimacy and obedience by the masses was then, and it had to be then, forfeited. We ought to obey God rather than men when the laws of man conflict with God's. Now, obedience to that kind of a ruler, a tyrannical ruler, was no longer mandated by God. In fact, as men of faith, they wisely understood the undisputed fact that as the creator of life, as the creator of heaven and earth, God claimed, and he was legitimate in this claim, absolute and total jurisdiction over every area of life, thought, and element of civilization. Satan does not rule in the affairs of men and nations. By internalizing this fundamental truth of God's sovereign majesty, then they were able to decisively act upon it in a God-glorifying resistance to unlawful governments. Theodore Beza, who became one of the greatest leaders of the Reformation, explains it this way. He says, quote, There is no other will than that of God alone, which is eternal and unchanging, the rule of all justice and righteousness. He is therefore the only one we are obligated to obey without any exception. And concerning obedience due to rulers, if they were always the mouth of God to command, it could also be said without exception that they should obey as unquestionably as God. But since the complete opposite is often the case, this condition must be established. We must obey them provided... They do not command acts of wickedness or things contrary to the Christian religion. Piety and love are the limits of obedience due to magistrates. End quote. The entire conflict from the beginning of time and throughout recorded history, which the Reformation focused upon, was the question of who rules and by what standard does that ruler rule? And the question was, is, is it Christ or Caesar? Is it God or man, God or the Roman Pope, scripture or tradition, God's law or man's law, rationalism or revelation, positive law or theonomic law. And so the question was, is the state God? Can the state act as God? In other words, can the state act as God to arbitrarily decree laws which go against the law of the sovereign? Another question they needed to ask was, what are the limits of the state's rule. And then they had to ask, when is it right to revolt? What are the warning signs of revolution? Or even this, what is the difference between revolts and total societal revolutions? Is there a difference? Which is ordained of God? Are they ordained of God? And when are they to be launched biblically? These were all questions that they needed to ask. They were forced to ask those questions. 
And where did they go to get the answer? There was only one place to go to get the answer. Not only from the scripture, but from the historical account of history that came before them. These were all pressing questions that had to be answered. They were, they were at the precipice. They were on the threshold of being destroyed. They had to answer these questions. And the only ones capable with the tools and wisdom to answer the questions was the Word of God and these men of Scripture. But we don't have men of Scripture anymore that are even asking the questions, let alone trying to answer the questions. So what the Reformers understood was that the source of law in any society is the God of that society. And those that create laws... They're acting as the God of that society. They're acting as God the lawgiver. So if the source of law comes from the state, if the source of law comes from the civil ruler or from a court of law in contradiction to the law of God, then the state, ruler, or court is the God of that social order. Are we to obey Balaam and Ashtaroth? Because that's what they're saying. They are the gods of that social order. So while those in power may function under the illusion that they are supremely omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, they are not God. Nor will they ever be God, for God will have them in derision according to his scripture verses throughout the Bible, especially Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. R.J. Rushduni again rightly observes, he says, when men set forth their own versions of the law, They thereby set forth their will as the governing power and authority and their ideas about justice as true righteousness. It is thus inevitable that such a humanistic state will wage war against Christ, his church, and his realm, end quote. And so another question that was raised is, the king the law, or is the law the king? This is the question that the great reformer Samuel Rutherford posited in his work Lex Rex. Was the law over the king Lex Rex or was the king over the law Rex Lex? So was it Lex Rex or Rex Lex? Drawing from the historical account of law and public policy evident throughout antiquity during and throughout the time of the Reformation in concert with biblical history and various doctrines of the Old and New Testament Samuel Rutherford concluded that the law of God always reigns supreme over the will of the prince. Unlike Brutus Mornay's approach to the justification of resistance, and they were both justifying resistance, but unlike Brutus Mornay's approach to the justification of resistance against tyranny in his work, Vindice Contra Tyrannis, Rutherford refused to argue his case from a natural law position. Instead, he argued explicitly from Scripture. That's why Lex Rex is so important. And while Monet's work of Vindice Contra Tyrannis is good, profitable, important, it sidesteps the divine principles necessary for revolt and revolution because it is drawing its epistemology from natural law theory. Rutherford concluded from the Scriptures that whenever a prince king or civil ruler willfully violates or 
seeks to usurp the law, which he defined as the law of God, he or she invalidated his or her office and therefore was no longer a legitimate ruler. He became or she became an invalid, invalid. The ruler became illegitimate, a legislative invalid with no longer having any right to rule over the people. He stated that any violation of God's law, in effect, made the civil ruler an outlaw because he was functioning outside of the law of God. No longer was he or any of his laws of overreach to be obeyed by the citizenry. He said very clearly, if he says to do that and the Bible says no, you are to not do that. Disobey that ruler. It's interesting, on Rutherford's deathbed, the king was so angry with Rutherford, he just wanted to kill him. So he's on his deathbed, Rutherford, and the king sends in his soldiers, and they tell Samuel Rutherford, you are summoned to the court of the king to answer for your heresies and your rebellion. And he said, I'm sorry, I am summoned to a higher court. And he died. You see, he knew what we need to understand that there is a higher authority, higher than man, higher than any law, higher than any court. It is the court of God. So whenever there was a violation of God's law, it made that individual an outlaw. No longer was he to be obeyed. In fact, once the ruler's laws were deemed unlawful, Rutherford said it was the duty, it was your Christian duty to rebel. Since... That ruler was no longer acting as a minister of God for good. He was acting for bad, for evil. If he was left in his position of power, Rutherford argued, the citizenry was then in danger of coming under the iron fist of a tyrant and the wrath of God. He was more concerned about coming under the wrath of God because that's what would happen. Tyranny was to be immediately, he said, met with by resistance. And if the tyrant refused to repent... He was found guilty of a capital offense, first against God and then against the people. This is what happened during the period of the English Revolution when King Charles I was executed for tyranny against God and the English people by Cromwell and Parliament. This was the outworkings. This this idea of executing a king for tyranny was the outworkings of a man known as St. John of Salisbury. His doctrine of tyrannicide which was actually adopted by Thomas Jefferson, making it plain for all to see in Virginia seal sec sempra tyrannis, which means thus always to tyrants. He adopted Salisbury's doctrine of tyrannicide. And in addition to the tyrant's evil violation of Romans 13, he was then therefore an enemy of law and order in addition to violating the peace of his realm. The issue of how one should respond in the face of tyranny was always an issue. There's nothing new under the sun. Men who are unable to control their lust for power will always seek to control other men by intimidation or violence to satisfy their lust. It was readily understood that such men were not subject to God and therefore they had to be dealt with by those who were. Recognizing this, St. Augustine stated, quote, What fragment of justice can there be in a man who is not subject to God? And if there is no justice in a man of this kind, then there is certainly no justice either in an assembly made up of such men. Careful scrutiny will show 
that there is no such good for those who live irreligiously, as all do who serve not God but demons. A people devoid of justice is not such a people as can constitute a commonwealth, because a commonwealth was constituted for the benefit of the people, of the citizenry. In the face of Roman tyranny, that's where Augustine lived, he dealt with it head on, casting, as David Hall puts it, quote, an enormous shadow over the next century, having an incredible impact, not only on the Reformation, but those theologians of the Middle Ages, end quote. And so it was St. John of Salisbury and his, his dates 1115 to 1180 who affirmed that truth, that obedience was not owed to a tyrannical ruler. Obedience is never owned to tyranny. The idea that truth is not to be given to a tyrant or men of violence is clearly stated in the case of Rahab and the spies, as well as the Hebrew midwives. Salisbury also used the idea that obedience is not to be given to an unjust ruler by citing Peter's declaration that he and the other apostles stated that they were to obey God rather than men when man's laws are contrary to God's. Now you think how this all fleshes out in the American experiment. Well, our American colonial period is distinctively marked by the work of Salisbury's influence with the statement, we ought to obey God rather than tyrants. That was Jefferson's whole thing. But Salisbury, as you know, went further in his theological arguments. In fact, he further developed Augustine's line of thinking because it was Salisbury that believed that in certain instances, it was not only permissible, but equitable to slay tyrants. You think we're talking about today. You talk about that today. You get the FBI, you get the CIA, you get the Justice Department, you get everybody come down your door. But I am simply stating the historical fact that that is what was. Not only in the Reformational Geneva, but that was in colonial America. Despite Salisbury's love of natural law and the exercising of man's reason on par with Scripture to his credit, he believed that the moral standard of God's law was there to govern political conduct and limit the scope of the ruling class. Not exacerbate their tyranny, but limit their tyranny because men gravitate when given power towards tyranny. The prince was to keep God's moral norms and guard his law. This would ensure the liberty of the people for their safety and their prosperity. He encouraged the ruler to carefully follow the pattern of Deuteronomy to keep the law of Moses. Notice what he said. All censures of law are void if they do not bear the image of divine law. Can't get much clearer than that. Now later, during the Reformation, Calvin himself would pick up on Salisbury's ideas, declaring that rulers were to be servants to God's law and not employ the law for their own purpose or pleasure. These are ideas when not only theonomic, they are theocratic. They place God as the ruler. It was Salisbury's ideas that sparked the uprising of the English nobles on the field of Runningmead against the tyrant King John, bringing about the famous Magna Carta's Declaration of Liberty. The Magna Carta was one of the most powerful declarations of liberty from tyrannical rule, setting the stage for many other documents of liberty. It is probably one of the foundational documents of liberty that our founders understood. And what is usually omitted from any discussion on the Magna Carta is its religious overtones. Its preamble much like the preamble of the Declaration of Independence and the early American state constitutions, referred to God 
where it states, John, by the grace of God, king of England. They had God as part of the covenant. They had God as part of the treaty. From the preamble, we can see how the clergy, the clergy, not those apolitical morons, but the clergy had a strong hand in its drafting. They brought the Magna Carta's first draft to the clergy. Note its wording. We, in the presence of God, and for the salvation of our own soul and the souls of all our ancestors, to the honor of God and the exaltation of the Holy Church and for the amendment of our kingdom. Can't get more religious than that. And that was a civil document. The church was to be both free of tyrannical rule as well as having, and get this, they were to have a prominent role in politics. They were to have a prominent role in government, in law, in jurisprudence. In fact, one of the guarantees that the king was to give the church through the Magna Carta was that the king should summon archbishops, bishops, abbots, and other clergymen whenever he sought counsel. This reestablished the Aaronic Mosaic relations where Aaron and Moses would work together. The church and the state would work together. God had provided this for Israel in their formation in order to ensure that the law of God was followed in the civil realm. But we have forgotten our history. We don't know who we are because we don't know where we came from. And if you don't know where you came from, you cannot know where you're going. And anyone can lead you by the nose into going to a place that you are not to be. This was a protective measure which lasted throughout the reign of the kings of Israel and Judah, the Moses and the Aaronic relation. The civil ruler was to have his clergy available at all times to unravel issues that were too difficult or complex for the ruler to navigate alone. Now, according to David Hall, it was argued that the propriety of counsels by the clergy to blunt, notice, to blunt the power of tyranny had become an acceptable notion in Calvin's day during the Genevan Reformation. They were there to blunt the power of the tyrant. The churches today, they don't even want to be involved. If the state says, do this, they say, okay, am I allowed to do that? Can I do that? Will you give me permission to do this? Can I do the other thing? The idea that the church has no part in the political realm or the civil realm is a modern notion and it is entirely foreign to both scripture and history. Any clergyman who claims to be apolitical does not know the word of God on these matters, nor does he know himself as a complete Christian man. He is void of any historical knowledge and he is not fit for the pulpits. To depart from the clergy's duty in claiming to be apolitical makes that clergyman himself illegitimate in his duty before God in light of directing the people in the affairs of state because he's not leading them anymore. He's not directing them. He's not telling them how to act under the heavy hand of a tyrannical ruler. Even Thomas Aquinas, a proponent of natural law theory and arguably a two-kingdom philosopher believed that the state even he believed that the state was to preserve the absolutes of God's moral law. Notice what he said. Tyrannical government is unjust because it is directed not to the common good, but to the private good of the ruler. 
Therefore, the overthrow of this kind of government does not have the character of sedition, unless perhaps it produces such disorder that the society under the tyrant suffers greater harm from the resulting disturbance than from the tyrant's rule. In other words, don't rebel if you can tolerate the tyranny, but if you can't, then maybe that's time. Maybe it's time. Now, following many of his predecessors and echoing Salisbury, Aquinas further declared this, Christians are not obligated to obey someone whom it is legitimate and even praiseworthy to kill. Let me say that again. Now, this is Thomas Aquinas. Christians are not obligated to obey someone who is legitimate and praiseworthy to kill. These were men of courage. These were men of courage. And you know why they had courage? Because they had faith. They understood the day in which they lived and they understood and knew from the depths of their being that God was on the throne. These theological ideas were tactical warnings to those that sought to rule tyrannically. So you think this was not published? Oh, these things were being published and the civil rulers were saying, now wait a minute, maybe I should just dial it back a little bit. Because if I don't dial it back a little bit, maybe there'll be a revolt, maybe there'll be a revolution, maybe there'll be some tyrannicide. It was blunting their unlimited tyrannical rule. But today... The churches are silent. There's no governor on the limits of their tyranny. In the spirit of the Hebrew judges, the power and overreach of tyrants was constantly challenged, placing them on notice if they violated the teachings of God's moral law during their reign. And since tyrannical rulers were a threat to law and order, they had to be monitored. The Scotsman John Knox, fiery, fiery John Knox, some of the people that were writing, who were in his audience, taking notes, writing his biography, said that when John Knox was in the pulpit, they thought that he would be smashing the pulpit to, to splinters. That was the words they used. Because he was pounding and pounding on the pulpit. They thought he would smash it into splinters. And who is he speaking to? Mary, Queen of Scots, begging her. To not to be a tyrant. And yet, when he gets off the pulpit, he comes to her meekly, begging her, telling her how he loves her, and he wants her to be a godly ruler. Fiery John Knox, in hoping to ensure that the ruler would be mindful to keep God's law, stated openly that a people had a duty to revolt against the tyrannical ruler. It was God's call to them. He sidestepped the lesser magistrate idea, and called on the people themselves as a body politic to rise up and depose of a tyrant. Knox even went so far as stating, quote, that if a ruler blasphemed God, he was worthy of outrage and possible rebellion. In 1558, Christopher Goodman, one of Knox's co-pastors, published a treatise called, and think about this, they were writing these things and they were publishing them and a publication of these things we get them killed. We don't want to even go to a Republican meeting. We don't even go to the county seat. We don't even want to go to the state house. We're afraid. We shouldn't be involved. But here, these men were publishing these treatises, 
that could have gotten them killed. So in 1558, Christopher Goodman, one of Knox's co-pastors, he published this treatise called, quote, How superior powers ought to be obeyed of their subjects, and wherewith they may lawfully, by God's word, be disobeyed and resisted. What were they doing? They were guiding their people. They were teaching their people. They were saying, we need to be astute. We need to know what's going on. Here's what he wrote. When kings or rulers become blasphemers of God, oppressors and murderers of the subjects, they ought no more to be accounted kings or lawful magistrates, but as private men to be examined, accused, condemned, and punished by the law of God. When magistrates cease to do their duty, the people are, as it were, without a magistrate. If princes do right and keep promises with you, then you owe them all humble obedience. If not, you are discharged and your study or to be, in this case, how you may depose and punish according to the law such rebels against God and oppressors of their country. Bold, bold men. Fearless men. Lions. In the face of wolves. Now, picking up on these historical and biblical fundamental principles of law and order, Thomas Jefferson wrote in 1787, and he wasn't a Christian man, not by the stretch of orthodoxy, of course. Was he Christianized? Yes. Was he a moral man? He wanted freedom. He understood liberty. He drew from the wrong epistemology. But notice what he writes in 1787, a letter to William Stephen Smith, the son-in-law of John Adams. He says this, and you know this quote. It's a famous quote. It's on t-shirts. You see them walking down the street with these t-shirts. The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. It is its natural manure. It is the fertilizer of freedom. He is quoting from Salisbury, the doctrine of tyrannicide. But he is also drawing from Aquinas and Knox. And while Jefferson drew his logic from Monet's natural law presupposition, he was nevertheless accurate in his conclusion, having been a student of history. And you know what happens today in school? In school today, in the, in the, the government indoctrination areas of the world, what's happening today is, oh, history is just a, a sequence of events and dates and things. And, and today, we're not even going to study history. We're going to study Taylor Swift. And we're going to study Madonna. And maybe we'll go far back as Marilyn Monroe and JFK maybe, but history? No. No, we, we don't want you to know where you've come from because we don't want you to be able to plot your future. Samuel Rutherford said this, quote, Tyranny being a work of Satan is not from God because sin, either habitual or actual, is not from God. The power that is must be from God. The magistrate as magistrate is good in nature of office and the intrinsic end of his office. But he is a minister of God for the good and therefore a power ethical, political or moral to oppress is not from God. In other words, if he's oppressing you, he's, that, that's, his power is not from God. And it's not a power. And there is no more from God but from a sinful nature and the old serpent than a licensed 
which is a license to sin. So notice, he said, an oppressive tyrant does not have power from God. He is, his power is coming from his natural tendency, the sinful tendency. Now, author Matt Truella, and some of you know Matt, in his work, The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrate, a proper resistance to tyranny and a repudiation of unlimited obedience to civil government as this, quote, the state's authority is not autonomous nor unlimited. Rulers are not to con- contravene, violate, oppose, or contradict God's law. Citizens are not bound to uphold unlimited obedience to the civil government. The king is a king precisely because he rules in the fear of the Lord and according to his law. When the king makes a law contrary to God's law, he becomes a tyrant, end quote. So Rutherford, like so many others before him and after him, had to contend with the theory of the divine right of kings, against which his writings of Lex Rex referred. The theory of the divine right of kings was a recipe for tyranny in England during most of the 17th century. And while the overbearing reigns of James I and Charles I filled the first half of the century, and whereas Charles II and James II ruled in the second half, this theory continues in our modern day. The executive officers of America and the tyrants of other nations rule as if they have the divine right to do so. According to this theory, the divine right of kings is given by God. The ruler gets his office and his power directly from God, and therefore he doesn't answer to anyone but God. In this way, the ruler is in effect God, godlike. Walking on earth like God in the same way as Jesus Christ walked on the earth, making him a God-man, overturning any biblical hierarchical order. Even the council, you wonder why the councils of, of, of Christendom were so important. Even though the council of Chalcedon of AD 451 had sought to dispel the notion that any human can be God, or God and man, other than the Lord Jesus Christ, that idea continues to this day, in one form or another. You see, the Pharaoh thought he was God, the Caesar thought he was God, the Council of Chalcedon said, no, 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 there's only one God-man, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ, and you, Mr. President, you, Mr. Dictator, you, Mr. Emperor, you, Mr. Pharaoh, you cannot be God walking on earth because there's only one. Well, it may not be articulated in this way. Just look at the actions of some of the rulers. Ruling by fiat. Whatever I say, that's law. If I say this, if I say that, that is the law. And so when rulers rule by divine decree, or in our modern era, it's called executive action, they are claiming to be God. They are claiming to be God. Jurist Sir William Blackstone, who played a leading role in the establishment of the English common law, completing the work of King Alfred's work on the laws of Moses, understood the tendency of man to become tyrannical whenever he departed from ruling in the fear of God. In his commentaries, he sets the stage for the jurisprudence of the founders, even though he also, like Jefferson, held to this natural law reasoning, and for the most part, was an Enlightenment thinker. Some of his Writings, however, clearly appeal to the law of God as the only valid standard for justice. And that's what he wrote. The laws laid down by God are the eternal, immutable laws of good and evil. This law, dictated by God himself, is of course superior in obligation to any other. It is binding over all the globe, in all countries, and at all times. No human laws are of any validity if contrary to this. End quote. What in the world happened In the early part of the 18th century, this idea 
later took on another form with George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, who declared that the state was God marching on earth. And it was the state that had divine authority. And that state never should be questioned. He saw the state as having all authority in direct contradiction to Christ's declaration in Matthew 28, where it says all power is given to Christ in heaven and in earth. Hegel's doctrine was simply a reintroduction of Machiavelli's work of the prince, where Machiavelli declared the king as the supreme, unquestionable ruler over the people. Hegel declared the state as the unquestionable, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-controlling sovereign over its people for good, or in most cases, for evil. This doctrine was sheer idolatry. And it challenged one of the most important and fundamental doctrines of Scripture, the sovereignty of God. God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the God who is marching on earth, not the state. Adding to Blackstone's thoughts in 1860 and perhaps refuting Hegel, John Wingate Thornton declared this, quote, We may safely assert that these two things in general without undermining government. One is that no civil ruler are to be obeyed when they enjoin things that are inconsistent with the commands of God. All such disobedience is lawful and glorious. Let's state that again. All disobedience is lawful and glorious. You can pat yourselves on the back, brothers and sisters, for keeping this church open during COVID. All disobedience is lawful and glorious. He continues, all commands running counter to the declared will of the supreme legislator of heaven and earth are null and void, and therefore disobedience to them is a duty, not a crime. Now you think about all of these statements throughout all of this history, and don't we know these things today? Are they not being taught in the pulpits Are they not being spoken in Congress? Are they not being taught in the schools? Now, for the reformers, every aspect of life, especially when it concerned governance, law, and order, was at root an issue of sovereignty. R.J. Rushduni once again explains exactly what sovereignty means. He says, the word sovereign comes from the Latin super. In other words, above, so that a sovereign in the nominative sense is one who is above all. One who is above all is independent and unlimited by any other and has independent and original authority and jurisdiction can only describe the God of Scripture. The Reformation taught that the kingdom of God had come and the Lord Jesus Christ was the king of nations, presently reigning as the sovereign within the realm of history, men and nations. Dr. Robert Fugate explains it further. He says, the doctrine of God's sovereignty is no mere metaphysical dogma, which is devoid of practical value, but is one that is calculated to produce a powerful effect upon Christian character and the daily walk. The doctrine of God's sovereignty lies at the foundation of Christian theology and in importance, second only, to the divine inspiration of scripture. So whenever you hear somebody says, say to you, Satan is in control, that denies the doctrine of sovereignty and it is heretical. And any church that spouts that vomitous thought is heretical. He continues, 
It is the center of gravity. The sovereignty of God is the center of gravity in the system of Christian truth. The sun around which all the lesser orbs are grouped. It is the golden milestone to which every highway of knowledge leads and from which all they radiate. It is the cord upon which all other doctrines are strung like so many pearls hold them in place and giving them unity. The sovereignty of God. You lose the sovereignty of God, you lose, you lose everything. He continues... The doctrine dethrones man and exalts the triune God as absolute Lord, thereby destroying the idolatry of man as God and the false religion of man as being the center of all things. It humbles man by taking away his pride, especially in his notion of being sovereign in his own salvation. The sovereignty of God denounces all false gods and false religions. It also lays the foundation of man's mission, which is expressed in the dominion covenant of Genesis 1, 26-8. It encourages submission to God's will. In the midst of our planning, we must acknowledge that the sovereignty of God may allow our plans to succeed, or He may alter or overrule our plans. It also provides peace security and comfort to the believer and guarantees the final triumph of good over evil, truth over falsehood, and the establishment of the kingdom of God. Ultimately, it evokes adoration, awe, and wonder in our worship and in our life's endeavors. You lose the sovereignty of God, you lose Christendom. You lose the sovereignty of God, you lose your own hope. The Reformation reestablished in the minds of Christian community In the minds of the Christian community, an acute sense of God's supremacy over men and nations. It was the reintroduction. It was the revitalization. It was the resurrection of the doctrine of God's sovereignty. That the Reformation would begin in the psychological reorientation of the masses. That's what they were doing. That's why the Reformation is so important. It was resurrecting this idea of sovereignty. No longer were they looking for devils and demons under every rock during the Middle Ages. They knew that God was in control. When the colonists were forced to deal with the tyranny of King George III, they had to come face to face with a decision. They had to come face to face with a decision that would change the events of history, especially for the colonies and for our United States. And so in 1773, the men of Marlborough, Connecticut, heralded the following famous proclamation. Three years before the Declaration. Death is more eligible than slavery. A freeborn people are not required by the religion of Jesus Christ to submit to tyranny. We implore the ruler above the skies that he would bear his arm in defense of his church and people and let Israel go. These were political sermons. These were heralded from pulpits from the pulpits across the entire colonial era. Commentator, theologian, Adam Clark, who witnessed firsthand of what the colonists were experiencing under King George, stated this, quote, Nothing can justify the oppression of the subjects to the ruler, but over attempts on the ruler's part to change the constitution or to rule contrary to law. When the ruler acts thusly, He dissolves the compact between him and his people. His authority is no longer binding. This conduct justifies opposition to his government. And what is happening in Congress? They're all asleep. 
They're debating, should we impeach? Should we not impeach? Should we say this? Should we say that? They're a bunch of girly men. They need to act. Because it is not only twilight, it is darkness. In 1774, two years before the Declaration, the Provincial Congress of Massachusetts publicly promoted resistance to tyranny as a duty. Now they have an ordinance. They concocted an ordinance. And notice what it said. It said, resistance to tyranny becomes the Christian and social duty of each individual. Continue steadfast. And with a proper sense of your dependence on God, normally defend those rights which heaven gave and no man ought to take it from us. John Wingate Thornton, again, in a sermon series during the American War for Independence, encouraged Christians to oppose tyranny wherever it's found. Notice what he said, quote, Tyranny brings ignorance and brutality along with it. It degrades men from their just rank into the class of brutes, damps their spirits. It suppresses arts, extinguishes every spark of noble adore and generosity in the breasts of those who are enslaved by it. It makes naturally strong and great minds feeble and little and triumphs over the ruins of virtue and humanity. This is true of tyranny in every shape. There can be nothing great and good where its influence reaches, for which reason it becomes every friend to truth and humankind, every lover of God and the Christian religion, to bear a part in opposing this hateful monster. Oh, but that's not very loving. Well, neither is tyranny. So we find these sentiments embedded in our own Declaration of Independence, which is the principal founding document of this nation. Nowhere it states, whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, that is life, liberty, and the pursuit of, originally it was property, now happiness, of course, it is the right which they mean the duty of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute a new government. I would hope a government under God, according to his law structure. This statement of the Declaration of Independence was pure John Knox. It wasn't calling on a lesser magistrate. It was calling on the people. It was pure John Knox. The challenge, however, comes from our final consideration. What are some of the challenges in deciding what to do in our modern era? Since no historical model can provide all the answers. How do we use the principles of Scripture, the examples of Scripture, the examples of post-biblical antiquity, the examples of history, the examples of, of the Puritan era, the, the era of the Reformation, in order to build a working model for our modern era? How do we do that? Where do we go from here? In light of the difficulty, sensitivity, and complexity of this topic, we will consider it at length when we continue in our exposition on the second book of Samuel. And this we shall do. God helping us. God helping us. To the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.